0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. All right. Well, uh, again, good morning. Now, before I, I preach this morning, uh, I just, I need to do something. I heard that, uh, I, I hope they're here. Is, is Merle and Pearl still here? Well, okay. Now, you got to stand up. We got to celebrate something. We didn't get to do this publicly. You got to stand up. Come on. We do this for every other married couple. These guys, we got the great privilege of marrying last week in their late 70s. They both were widows, met each other. They've known each other since, was it grade six? Something like seven, a long time. Grade one. Okay. Grade one. And they just got married. And let's give them a huge hand. Awesome. This is so great. Very cool, very cool. And just as a family, we want to bless you guys and say, God bless you in your new marriage. May Jesus do great things in your life. Uh, isn't that awesome? It's great. God bless you guys. Have a seat. And uh, just think about that. Thousands of people online are going to clap for you somewhere in another country, which is great. So it's good. So it's good. Well, good morning, C4 family. We're really glad, of course, that you're here today. And uh, today is the second last in the book of uh, Philippians. So if you've got your Bible this morning, electronic, or if you've got your hard copy, we'd love you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be as a church family this morning. There is a grand difference between saying you're going to do something and doing it. Wouldn't you agree? I'm going to lose weight and losing weight. I am going to go to the gym, and going to the gym. I I laughed when Joanna LaFleur was talking about that a few weeks ago. So many of us even get so excited about going to the gym, we actually spend the money to buy the membership, and we still don't go. There is a huge disconnect between good desires and actually doing what we want. I I want to date this person, but you need to talk to them, right? Right. Well, Paul is going to address that factor in the church. He's going to actually confront a very large elephant in the room in this community, that is the Church of Philippi, and it's one very much here today. He's going to talk about one thing. You can't just talk about Christian unity. You have to experience it. You can't just come to church and say, we believe that we're called to be not sort of, you know, together in a broad sense. We're called to be together as a family and love each other. Didn't Jesus say something profound like, they'll know we are Christians by our love? Question mark. It's one thing to talk about Christian unity. Jesus prayed that grand prayer that we would show love for each other and that we would be unified. And so Paul, at this moment in his letter, comes. To address the question of disunity, even though this church has so much good teaching on unity. It was the famed theologian Lucy who said to Snoopy, there are times when you really bug me and I admit also there are times where I want to give you a big hug and Snoopy replied brilliantly as he always does, well that's just the way I am, I'm huggable and I'm buggable. (laughs) I read that this week and I said that is a grand description of church. And so today, if you have ears to hear and a heart that is open, which some of us do and some of us don't, Jesus is going to talk to us about each other. And not just people here, but people in other churches, people that have left this church and come to this church, the church you've come from, if you come from a church, he's going to talk about this very openly. This is the second, like I said in the last, of the book of Philippians, and I want to remind everyone as we get going today that our theme is joy. This series specifically is about joy in in, in suffering, joy in the middle of life, but before we really get to the meat of what Paul wants to say today and the Spirit of God is going to speak to us about today, I I felt compelled this week to re-remind us of the story of Paul at this moment and the birth of this church. Paul's sitting in a Roman jail while he's writing this letter under house arrest, and he's writing to a church that actually was birthed under persecution and is still under persecution. This is something we need to understand. This church that's over 11 years old at this moment in church history is still being persecuted. Never forget, the stronger the pressure from the outside, the easier it is to turn on one another. We all know this if you're part of a family. Like, just think about it, the worst things get at work or at life or with health, you easily can turn on each other. Well, the same thing with persecution. Internal unity is always stretched when the external pressures grow more and more. Now, to understand the power and the cost of what Paul is about to announce to this community, this is what he says. He says, I want to remind you of where you've come from, and if you've got a Bible, quick you can turn to Acts 16, because actually Luke outlines how this church came about. Here's the story of the church of Philippi. Verse 12. From there we traveled, Paul and Luke, to Philippi. It was a Roman colony, a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there for several days. Ready? On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to a river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Why? There are so few Jews in Philippi, there was no synagogue. So they would usually meet by rivers to pray. So this is where Paul goes. It says that we sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. Her name was Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth. You say, well, what does that mean? Simple. She was an Armani dealer. Very, very wealthy. Burberry is what she did. She's a worshiper of God. And it says, interesting, that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Sovereignty. Now when she and the members of our whole household were baptized, she invited us into her home. This is how this church begins, right here. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, so a few weeks later, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. This isn't fake, this isn't like Miss Cleo on television, this is the real deal. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling she followed paul and the rest of us shouting these men are servants of the most high god they're they're telling you the way you must be saved and she kept this up for many days and finally paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the demon and that little slave girl in the name of jesus christ i command you to come out of her and at that moment the spirit left her freedom when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. They're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans, and they don't accept our practices. And the crowd joined in in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. So now you have two grown men who are publicly naked and being beaten. And oh, side note, Paul's a Roman citizen. It's illegal for him uh, to go through this. So this is injustice. After they had been, not just beaten, severely flogged, they were thrown into the prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet with stocks. And so not only is the law broken, not only are they now in jail, they're in the worst part of the jail, their feet are fastened in stocks. Well, if you read the story, this is what happens. Paul and Silas break out at midnight singing to Jesus. The whole jail's listening. No one understands what's going on. Interesting, joy in what? Suffering. And suddenly, there's an earthquake. The jailer's going to commit suicide because he thought he's lost all the prisoners. Paul says, don't take your life, we're all here. And Paul ends up leading the jailer and his family to Christ. See, the church in Philippi was birthed By a group of women who got saved, a young girl who was set free, and a jailer who was about to take his life, and they were all in the middle of persecution, beating, and interesting, suffering. It's 11 years later now. Paul's now sitting in another jail, now in Rome, and he writes this powerful letter of joy. And he reminds these everyday Christians these things Jesus is near. God is sovereign and merciful. The world belongs to God, and Jesus is Savior. And by the way, He's the true Lord. He saved us. We have His Spirit. That Spirit gives us a worldview and experiences that are not natural, and the Spirit promises us joy even in suffering. And then He says, and our unity between one another is not because we go to church, or tradition, or logic. It's Jesus He's reminded them and us time and time again that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make all things right. He's going to bring healing, and he's going to bring justice that has been denied in this life in the next. Time and time again, Paul wrote in this letter that as they were waiting for Jesus, like we talked about last week, as they lived in spring, waiting for summer, he he gave them all sorts of amazing theology. But then he comes and says at this moment, you can't just think like a good Christian. It needs to be worked out in your everyday life and specifically worked out in how you treat one another. Remember what he said in Philippians 1.27? Whatever happens to you, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to you or see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the Holy Spirit, striving together as one person for the faith of the gospel. Not many people, one. Philippians 2.1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement, from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, any common sharing in his Holy Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one mind. Here it is. Do nothing, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to, uh, to each other, to the interests of others. Paul says, and continues to say, and the Spirit says to us, because our future as Christians is so clear and certain, because of what Jesus has already done for us, because we have the Spirit, we can have joy, a joy-filled Christian life, even in the midst of suffering, and while we're suffering, we need to love each other as Christians. So at this point in the letter, Paul now says these words. I want to see this worked out in your church. I want to see this worked out. And by the way, at this moment in Philippi, it wasn't working. He starts like this, Philippians 4.1, the verse we ended with last week. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Interesting, notice he starts with love. This really struck me this week. Actually, this theme has been sitting with me since September. Paul loved these people. I mean, he really loved them. He didn't know all of them at this moment. I'm sure he did not know all their names. He could not be the small P pastor many of them wanted because he wasn't even there. But deep down, he loved them. As I was preparing this week, this is dangerous for pastors because we have to ask ourselves the question before we ask you the question. I could hear the Spirit of God saying to me more and more, do you actually love C4 Church? I mean, do you really love the people I've given you to lead? My answer was, well, sort of. Sometimes, yes, no, maybe. See, I've been praying about something in my own life that I would actually love you. And I've actually been praying, too, that you would love me. Because as someone said in the office last week, Out of love, challenge and call is always received better. Paul says, I love you. I love you so deeply as Christians, even though I don't know some of you, and he had a motive and a strength that I personally don't have yet. And God, given love, always, always, always produces something. See, Paul, at this moment, wants the theology to have some legs, he wants all the capital T truth he's given, all the profound orthodoxy to move into orthopraxy. He, he wants to say that heaven has to touch earth. Christianity has to work out in the everyday. Actually, what Jesus' half-brother said is what Paul is saying here. You just can't be hearers of the word, Christian. You have to do it. So now to the point. Paul calls out, calls out two leaders in that church. Now never forget this, because we do. That when a letter was sent 2,000 years ago, it was read in public. No one was carrying around their NIV study Bible. No one had their iPhone with, you know, by, no, no, it was a letter. No one had reread the letter and the letter would be opened and, and read to the whole church like this. And so suddenly Paul writes this letter. They're very excited. They open the letter and he calls out two women by name. Can you imagine? Awkward moment. Who are publicly fighting. And everyone knows they are. Now, please don't misunderstand. They're not the bad ones. They're long-term friends. And please, by the way, don't be one of those people. And I mean this sincerely. Go, oh, there goes the women again. Catfight. Grow up in your thinking. This is a genuine disagreement between two people. Philippians 4.2. I plead with Judea. I, I plead with Syneke to be of the same mind of the Lord. Syneke, I got that one. That took a lot of work, by the way. He says, I plead, I plead. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Their names, interestingly, mean a success and lucky. Both names are connected to the goddess of fortune, uh, fortune. Both were saved out of religiously pagan backgrounds like the rest of that church. And though they're in Jesus, years later, they're now fighting with one another. Now notice, Paul refuses to take sides. Watch this. He wants to maintain the long-term friendship he's actually had. So he says, I plead. I plead with both of you. He addresses the women equally. He doesn't take sides. He's very even-handed. And then he says these words. Hear it this morning, please. You online, listen closely. He says, you who are in what? Say it. The Lord. Paul reminds all of us that they both are real Christians. They're both loved by Jesus. They're both in good standing with God. And yet, things aren't good. One person observed, I had never caught it, but it's brilliant. Not only are they positionally in the Lord, but Paul is driving something home that many of us need to wrestle with this morning. You should be getting nervous at this moment where I'm about to go. Because he begins to teach that we're in the Lord. In other words, Jesus is our King and our Lord, and we do not have the right to live the life we want that contradicts his lordship. And Paul is saying, you are contradicting the lordship of Jesus in your life by the way you're treating each other because you're harming the local church. He says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, Paul asks an unnamed friend to mediate. Many people actually believe it's, the, it's Luke. And he's asking someone to get involved so an honest conversation can take place. Now, notice also he calls all these people, including both women, co-workers. Very important. Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Mark, Luke, and many others are called co-workers. Now, I don't want to go too far, but this implies these two ladies were actually leaders in the church. It's a formal title. Now, no matter where you fall on that, the point is they have a large public role in the local church, and Paul is now dealing with it in a very public way. And at the heart of this is not only the issue of the unity of the church, it's the cause of the gospel. Paul is saying you cannot continually be turning on one another and fighting in public and not getting along with one another as we're trying to go tell people about Jesus. This needs to be worked out. They were leaders they're in the lord they're in the book of life they're saved they're in good standing with god and paul here calls for restoration not discipline he calls on grace not force. and the common ground please catch this this morning especially if you've done church for so long the common ground for them is not church membership it's not friendship it's not gifts it's not history guess what it's not even about logic in other words this would be good we work this out because no no it's jesus Because you're in Jesus, you need to resolve this. Please work this out. Paul brings up a very large elephant right in the middle of a church meeting because he understands the damage that's being done. Well, after he says, My dear friends, work this out. He said, Now I've talked about that elephant, let me talk to everyone. It says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Here's this amazing stirring call, this almost confrontational call to rejoice, to have joy despite what we are facing. It was Augustine of Hippo who wrote so long ago that Christians should be an alleluia from head to toe. Now this is significant. Because what Paul is saying is, even when there's church fights going on, even when you're being persecuted, joy must be a distinctive mark of a Christian. Paul, the theologian of grace, is the theologian of joy. No matter what's going on around us, he says, we have to have joy. But here's the phrase one person put. It's predicated on your relationship with Jesus. It's not a Christian option, by the way. It's an imperative. It's a command. But deeper than that, the closer you are to Jesus, the more joy you will have. The path to joy is seen in obedience. Paul uh, says it, says do it, rejoice. The spirit of celebration will never be around you as a Christian unless there's a trust in God, what he's done, what he is doing, what he will do. If you ever stop trusting that God is good, if you ever take your eyes off Jesus and start looking at other Christians, if you start doubting that God is in control, that he's holy, that he's love, you will never be able to have joy. You'll never see God's work in the seen or unseen, the expected or the unexpected, He says, rejoice. Your life must be marked by joy. Now, here's just a side note as a Christian. Is your life marked by joy? And then quickly, Paul says in verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, this really struck me. I've heard this preached a hundred times. But I don't think anyone's told me the context of it. He says, let your gentleness be evidence to all. Now, gentleness, I I think we have a weak view of gentleness because we think it's weak. Gentleness does not just imply humility or, or a willingness to forgive. Gentleness at its heart is this. Everyone ready? I refuse to retaliate even though I could be right. Thank you. Now, think about this. I refuse to retaliate. This is given in the context of people who are persecuted for their faith. That's why Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all people. He's clearly saying to a group of people, you need to be like Jesus. Peter put it so best when he summarized Jesus' time of trial in 1 Peter 2.23. And it says this, when Jesus was suffering, it says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. There is a call here for Christians not to retaliate, to put their trust in the justice of God in the end. And so he's basically saying, you need to be ready and I need to be ready as a Christian not only to forgive people inside the church, we need to be absolutely ready never to retaliate against those who persecute us for being Christians. When they mock us, we bless them. When they hit us, we hug them. When they kill us, we celebrate. Why? Paul says it. Because the Lord is near. This is the truth for what Paul has said and is going to say. He says, we overcome fear. We have joy because he's coming. We love those that hate us or mistreat us or misrepresent us verbally or otherwise because he's coming. And we do this because we're going to have to give an account. He is coming back and he's going to deal with those that mistreat us. Never forget that when someone is persecuted for standing up for Jesus, the person is not attacking you, he's attacking our Savior. And Paul says, let your gentleness be evidence to all. We as Christians should not be people of grand power getting our way through politics. We should not be people pushing people around when they go at us. We should be gentle. Now, if we're being honest about this right now, we should start asking, well, this is hard. I mean, this is a not natural, John. This isn't real to me. I mean, how do I forgive people in the church, but, and maybe even reconcile them, but how do I love people who don't love Jesus, people that mock me at work, my family members that spit or attack me because I've met Jesus? Simply, how do I love people in the church and outside of the church? And the answer, the beginning of the journey is not where most of us would start. It's not self-help, and it's not group therapy. So important. It's prayer. Paul says this, it's very interesting. Here's one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, yet so misquoted. Do nothing out of anxious, do, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now here's what happens. We throw this verse around all the time for anyone who's struggling with worry, and that's important. But never forget that context is king. Paul is writing this to people who are in jail for their faith, losing family members for their faith. And then he says, well, you are under severe persecution. Don't be anxious. Worry, stress, fear, and darkness are real. We're not delegitimizing them. But never forget who's in control. People are getting beat up. They're losing jobs. They're imprisoned. Matthew and Luke used this word when Jesus says to the twelve, you're going to face a lot of people for me. And so he says, since the Lord is near, thank God that you get to suffer like Jesus did and come to me in prayer in the face of real worry, real anxiety, real darkness and mistreatment. Pray and pray through petition and thanksgiving. Now, petition is important. Petition is when we go to God and we're very specific about things. I've talked to so many people who talk generally to God. You say, well, he knows everything. Well, I know he knows everything, but he'd like to have a conversation with you about you. Be specific, he says, in your petitions. Invite God into every single circumstance. And then he says, be thankful. Do you understand the power of what Paul is teaching his people? He says, well, you're being mistreated in a society that thinks you're crazy. Well, they're saying Caesar is Lord, and you're saying Jesus is Lord. Well, some of you have lost your jobs. Well, some of you have been burned by cigarettes. By some of you, and the list goes on. He says, listen, the anxiety is real, but do not be overcome by it. Go to our God in prayer. Now, catch this. He says, petition, invite God in, and then be thankful. One of the great disbalances in many of us is many of us are thankful but never petition, or many of us petition, but we're never thankful. He says you must be thankful. Recall God's mercy, His love, the work He's doing. One person wrote, the lack of gratitude is the first step towards idolatry. Thanksgiving is that explicit acknowledgement that we are not God. It's a recognition that everything we have that comes is a gift. It's a verbalization before God that we're utterly dependent on Him. A believer, the scriptures say, should pray. Paul says, about every circumstance, invite God in formally. Say, Jesus, right into my work, into my family, into the divorce I'm going through, into mental illness, I'm inviting you. And in the middle of it, I am thankful. You've called me. Salvation is real. And he goes on and on. And then he says, verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace he's talking about is not theological peace, what we get between us and God because of the work of Jesus. This is talking about situational, unnatural peace. It's an inner sense of contentment. So Paul says to his community, and the Spirit of God says to ours, work out your trouble with one another. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Work out your trouble with one another as Christians. Why? Because of Jesus' work in you. Be gentle to those that attack you because of Jesus' work in you. Don't be consumed by fear or worry because of Jesus' work in you. And just take a moment, he'd say, and stop. Look up around and see that God, his work and his beauty, are even found in the midst of persecution and suffering. There are not only echoes of Eden, but there are signs of what is to come. He says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Now please catch this this morning. Paul, when he speaks about truth, it's very narrow. Who is God? What he's revealed specifically in scripture. Truth in the capital T sense. Noble comes from the word holy. It's thinking on holy, sanctified things. Truth is and, and nobility are found their center at God. Find their center in God's Word. Find their center in what we call specific specific revelation. Pure and right is morality. What is correct? It's the Ten Commandments. It is what we know that God just didn't wake up one day and say, "I don't like murder." He is life. That's why he doesn't like murder. He hates unfaithfulness because he's a covenant-keeping God. He he tells us not to steal because he's a gift-giving God. He says, "Think on truth. Think on holy things. Be involved." In pure and right things but then he goes farther he says look to anything that is lovely or admirable now this has not been taught in many churches when i reread it this week i got a little angry because i felt i'd been deprived because what this actually is is what theologians call common grace love and admirable praiseworthy are actually roman virtual terms and you say well what, what are you saying here it is Paul was saying, look around at the world that is not Christian and you still will find God's fingerprints there too. There are excellent and praiseworthy things that are outside of the church. Paul is teaching that as the church is surrounded and things get darker and more difficult to be a normal Christian, we are not permitted to run We are not permitted only to see evil out there. We may not become anti-science, anti-intellectual, anti-anti... No. As one wrote, Paul knows that since the Philippians are being persecuted by a society around them, they will be tempted to reject everything outside of the church as evil. But he calls them to look and actually see that in that society, though hostile and evil... God is still at work. They are still part of God's world, and there's much good the believers can affirm. We, as a church, will not permit ourselves to fortress ourselves in some little box and be a little family and say everything else is going to hell in a handbasket. God reminds us, as things get darker, we are called to look for good things even outside of our own ranks. In literature, in movies, in our friends, How many Christians have honestly admit, man, when I hang out with people who aren't Christians, they're way nicer than Christians. Right? Praiseworthy. The great mistake many of our churches now in Canada are edging towards as it gets more and more difficult to hold what we hold, that Jesus is the only way. Our view of God's view of sexuality, as things get tighter and tighter, our natural reaction is going to be to do this. And God says, no. Keep seeing my good everywhere. Because if you don't, you will become unthankful. Whatever you've learned from me, received or heard from me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. He says, look, as you are thinking on good things, it still does not deny the great thing I've commanded you. Go back, read what I've given you in this letter and receive it. Put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, friends, catch this please. The God of peace will be with you. It's not that he's going to give you peace. God's going to show up. So many of us are looking for a five-step program to meet Jesus better. Stop. He says, if you put into practice what I've taught you, if you believe that Jesus is returning, if you stay close to Holy Scripture, if you have joy in suffering, if you pray with petition and thanksgiving, the God of peace will come to you. The great thing that happens in Christian movements is this, when the Holy Spirit, who by the way gives, notice, love, joy, and peace, shows up in a new, fresh, overwhelming, powerful way. He brings a peace that you can't buy, invent, or build up. Paul promises us that the God of peace will be among us. We need to be longing for the living God in His presence, because the closer the living God comes, the closer we get to love. The natural thing is joy and peace is given. Now, here's the question this morning: Why did Paul write all of this? I mean, obviously for the glory of God. Obviously, because all things in the end are about His glory. But this is the moment we all need to do in an online right here. Why did Paul write all of this? One word. Ready? Freedom. This is about freedom. Jesus said it best, right? I have come to give life and life abundant. This isn't just positional life we get with God in heaven someday. It's now. It's joy in the now. It's peace in the now. It's freedom in the now. Paul wrote all of this to the group of Philippians because he knew, and God's word tells us time and time again, that when we live life for God's glory and we connect with him in a deeper way, he brings life, and every time that life, Jesus' life through the Spirit shows up, there is freedom. Revival is duplicated life. So here's a definition. Christian life, personally and corporately in revival, is living in freedom. Jesus comes to many of you today and says, you have so little joy, or your joy, interestingly, is carpe- carpent... Carpen- I can't even say it. Carpen- okay, won't spill over to the rest of your life. We'll go there. Because your whole life is in boxes. You're not free. You're not free because you're bitter. You're unforgiving. You're, you're angry. You're judgmental. You're not even willing to talk to Jesus and come to him and let him speak to you about your brokenness. You're not even willing to have an honest conversation about the many breakdowns you've been involved in with other Christians. Paul comes and says, for the sake of the gospel, stemming out of all the work that Jesus has done in your life, because he's called you to live out of faith and fear and trembling, he says, I would like to talk to you about the fight you've been through so you can be free. I would like you to have joy again as a Christian. I would like you to be able to come to church again and actually have some joy. I would like you to have a Christian life that's not full of regret. He says, let's talk about forgiving yourself and forgiving others, not only inside the church, but outside of the church, so you can be marked with freedom. Number one, here it is. Application, very simple. The concept of Christian unity must be worked out one fight at a time. Right here. It was the Puritan Thomas Brooks that penned, For wolves to worry lambs is no wonder, but when lambs worry one another, it is unnatural and it is monstrous. Many of us here, if we're honest, have seen, started, or been involved in infighting. Angry words, presumption of motives, lack of submission, verbal misrepresentation, choosing sides, filling in ideas or situations without ever asking for the facts, childlike fights in church. One of the great questions Chuck Swindoll wrote is this, Is there anyone or someone in your life that you continue to blame for the hurt you had to endure, bringing pain you never got to reconcile? If so, do you have any idea how much emotional energy you're burning up to nurse that wound? And while I'm asking the questions, by the way, are you aware of the joy-stealing effects an unforgiving spirit is having on your life right now? If your bitterness is deep enough, you've just stopped living. And then he, he, great, he says this, it's no wonder you've stopped laughing. We talked about this last week. Philippians 3.13, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I'm straining towards what is ahead. Our past cannot be greater than the God we worship. Our past that is pre-Christian, our past that is post-Christian in the sense that the things He has done, the things good or evil He has done, they cannot be bigger than what He wants to do today. Jesus is coming to some of you and you are very uncomfortable and if you're not Spirit of God, make them uncomfortable. Jesus wants many of us in this church to have some joy again. He wants many more of us to have freedom. He wants you to forgive, and he wants you to be forgiven. Never forget the warning Paul wrote to another church, which we have made metaphor to make us feel safer, but it was wrong. Ephesians four twenty six and 7. In your anger, do not sin. So you can be angry and not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. What Paul is warning the church is this. Hear me clearly today. That if you allow a fight like Judea and Syneche to keep going, and anger and bitterness are not resolved, you will give supernatural evil a right right into your Christian life. I'm not talking about oppression in you. The word foothold here is topos. It's the same word Paul uses in Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, if you play with fire long enough, You will not only lose your joy, you won't be possessed by evil, you're possessed by Jesus, but you will open all sorts of rooms into your life and you will not only deal with your own sin, you will not only have no joy, you will not only grieve the Holy Spirit and have very little power, you will have to now begin to deal with supernatural evil. Why? Because you have habitually played with the other side. Paul comes and says to his community, the Spirit of Jesus comes to our community and says, We don't need to be this. We don't need to be joyless, broken, infighting Christians. It doesn't have to be this way. Do we have the right to disagree? Of course. Are we talking about uniformity? Of course not. We're talking about unity. But every one of you who's listening to the sound of my voice know what I'm really speaking about. Jesus comes at this moment and says, if you want joy in your suffering." You have to have a new conversation with me. So here it is. Paul comes and says to his community, work this out. So my question to you today is this. Do you want joy? Do you want freedom? Are you even willing to go back and talk to Jesus about the infighting you've been involved in? Are you willing to start the process of forgiveness? Which means you simply say to Jesus, I am willing to have the conversation to say I'm willing to maybe forgive. And by the way, let me make this very clear for all of us. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Forgiveness is choosing not to use something against someone else who deserves it. It's non-retaliation. Now I understand also that there's a lot of questions that go with this. Because we're not just talking about forgiveness, we're talking about reconciling with a brother and sister. Now there's no way in 42 minutes I can walk through all of this, because some of you are saying, well, I can't reconcile because someone's dead, or they're dangerous, I can't go near those people, or I don't know them anymore. On it, listen, the question before us today is, are you willing to have the intense conversation so you get free? Also included, as you leave today at every single door, hear this please, and for you online, it's posted right beside the message, In the follow-up questions with the connect groups this week i've put down a website it's a blog it's about 10 pages that in depth deals with the question of what is forgiveness what is reconciliation and how do i do it right with someone who may or may not be safe and how do i make sure i do it with right motive if you're serious about living in fear and trembling if you're serious about revival please let me break this down to you Our church is not experiencing a corporate revival because there's too much bitterness in this house. Many people have started encountering Jesus in September in ways we've never imagined, but we have not had a corporate move of the Spirit. Why? Because our bitterness and unforgiveness and our past fights have not been resolved. So it's like a broken toilet. It's just too full of stuff and it needs to get flushed. And it's difficult, and yet, here's the point. Jesus came to give us life, and life abundant, not dirty toilets. So Jesus comes to some of you today, and I come to you as one of your pastors, and I say to you, "Mm, be free. Begin the conversation with Jesus and with others. Some of you who struggle with anxiety, genuinely, and it's a difficult thing, all of us do actually. It's interesting, I found out this week that the word worry in Old English means to strangle or choke. Isn't that interesting? Paul says that if you want to be free from anxiety at its deepest root, though you may need some help in other ways, he says pray. See your future clearly as the return of Jesus. Be thankful. A thankful spirit will always bring joy. Pray about everything. Pray in detail about everything. Peace is connected to the transformative presence of God, and the transformative presence of God is always connected to prayer, because when we pray, He comes. As John Wesley used to say, there are many guaranteed places of meeting with God, and one of them is always prayer. To some of you, he comes today and says it is time that we deal with the poison, the root of unforgiveness, bitterness, pride, vanity, etc., etc. It's time. To others, he says, begin a prayer life that is honest, it is simple, it is petitionary, it is thanksgiving. He promises peace will come. And then here's the end point, and we end with this. Why? Why at the end of the day should I forgive you or you or me? Why should I ask for joy? Maybe I like my darkness every once in a while. Like, why should I work so hard? John, don't you understand? My, My family's so messed up. Why do I have to deal with this other family called church? It's too much. Here's the reason why. Lost people. Lost people. I mean, this is Paul's point. Why would I forgive you or you forgive me? Why would I suffer for Jesus when I don't have to? Why would I be gentle to those that mock my faith? Why pray? Why thanksgiving? Why? The answer is the gospel. As one person wrote, in a post-Christian, post-modern world which has generally lost its bearings because it's abandoned God, such profound spirituality is the key to effective evangelism. In a world, think about this, where fear is greater than the reality of joy. Our privilege is to live out the gospel of true peace, wholeness in every sense of the word that points other people to a source beyond ourselves. We can do this because the Lord is near in the first sense, and by the Spirit who turns our present circumstances into joy and peace and prompts our prayers, we can begin to introduce a very skeptical, jaded, unjoy-filled world to Jesus because we forgive each other, to Jesus because we're gentle when we're mocked, to Jesus because we work our stuff out, to Jesus because we forgive. When we do this, people will go, you're crazy, and we'll go, yeah, I know, but there's this guy in me i got to talk to you about. One time, I used to think that the impetus was just about us working at our lordship, which it is. But I never connected Paul's thinking to the lost. Paul cares so much about our friends, family, enemies around us who don't know Jesus. He'd say, please work your stuff out. Please ask for joy. Please ask for the God of peace. Please be transformed because people are like lost for real. And they used to be you. They are you when you used to be that. Like he just says, please, church, get to the point where you say, I will do this and I will be other-centered like Jesus. Why? Because I want other people to meet the living Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. Steph is going to come back. And we're going to pray some prayers as we usually do. I'm going to really strong, strongly say to many of you, please, please, go and read that blog. Wrestle with the stuff you have let sitting in you for years. For some of you who are saying, oh, I have a few things that's not that big of a deal. It is. The Spirit of God never brings up something that's not a big deal. And so let's just do this. So why don't we stand for a moment and we'll pray this way. And you online too, this goes for you, very much for you actually. Wherever you might be, part of our community, another church, another country. But let's just just pray. Number one, number one, here's the first thing. Spirit of Jesus, I pray you'd come on me in this church and begin to talk to us about our unforgiveness, past fights that have not been resolved. And I pray a few things at this moment. If this is you and you're willing, pray this to Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, I do not have an enemy to forgive or reconcile. Actually, sometimes they don't deserve it. But I'm saying to you, I'm willing with your help to forgive and reconcile because I want to be free. I want freedom. I ask Jesus for you to supernaturally begin to point out fights, past hurts, things that we've instigated we didn't even know caused damage. Some of us need to say, Lord Jesus, forgive us Forgive us, for being causes, forgive us for being disunity in our church or other churches. Forgive me. Second prayer uh, you know, is this. Lord, some of us are deeply anxious. So Lord, teach us how to pray. To be thankful. To see your work in scripture and in the church but outside of it. Just pray this. God, help me see you. God, help me to be very specific with you about my life. And Lord Jesus, help me to be thankful. And I would ask God that the God of peace, you would come on many of us and set us free. And lastly, I pray for myself and my family that we would be in such a place that we'd be willing to forgive, work through our stuff, petition, have joined suffering because other people need to find Jesus. Give us the attitude of Christ. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crowtherscreek.ca.